0: Morning, chilly Bible. How are we doing this morning? I got to get get out in my yard yesterday, get my garage clean, got the grass cut, the oil changed in the mower. It's a good day, you know. We uh, got dirt under my fingernails. It's you know, that's an uncommon occurrence for this pastor. So um, that's a that's a good thing. Whenever I get to do that, be out in the yard, be active. Um, And it's fun to be able to do that this early in the year. One of the fun things I get to do, as you know, is to welcome new members, and we have one this morning. Uh, Danny Pyatt, if you would come forward, please, come on up and join me up here. Those of you who don't know Danny, um, I hope you've gotten a chance to meet him. Uh, Danny is uh, our head usher. And uh, he is helping us out to help people get in here and find their seats and that kind of thing. But Danny's been with us now for what, about six months, maybe a year. A year. Okay, I'm behind. <laughs> I lose track of time. Uh, every, uh, well, in any case, we're excited that Danny is here. And the elders and I have gathered as we do and talked with Danny. Uh, he shared his testimony with us, a very powerful testimony of how he came the faith in Jesus Christ and uh, how he came to be part of the church here. And so we want to welcome him officially. And so, Danny, if you'd step forward to the mic here, we've got some questions for you. First of all, uh, do you confess faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and do you desire, above all else, to live for him? Do you declare your intention to live in submission to the doctrine of the church as expressed in its confession of faith? Do you promise to support this congregation with your prayers, with your faithful attendance at its services, by your encouragement of our members, the willing use of your talents in our ministry, and the giving of your means as God prospers you? And Jesus said to you in Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brother Danny for his commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, that it came to him by grace uh, through faith and that you welcomed him into your family by your Holy Spirit. Father, we welcome him today into our family. Uh, He has been long a member of yours, but we welcome him today officially into ours and we pray your grace would overflow to him, that you would work in a mighty way in his heart by the Holy Spirit, that you would bless his ministry here, that you would uh, cause... uh, the ministry of Hillicothe Bible Church to be greatly enhanced because he is serving here with us and and part of the community and the family. And Father, we uh, pray that you would transform him into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, and that uh, as he is sanctified that he would give ample evidence by his life that Jesus is present in it. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, brother. Thanks. For I've got four more membership applications sitting on my desk uh, at the moment. And if you are interested in adding to that stack, uh, see me afterward, and we will uh, interview you as quickly as we can. We probably won't do any uh, today or tomorrow. Um, or uh, next week since it is Easter. But uh, if you're interested in being a member, do, uh, do see us, and we'll get you the paperwork and, and um, talk to you about that. Uh, it is Palm Sunday, and today is the day when Jesus 2,000 years ago entered Jerusalem as King and Messiah, and by this act he inaugurated his kingdom, which is already present here among us but is not yet fully established over the whole earth as it will be one day. Amen? One day, one day, we will see Jesus reigning and ruling from Jerusalem as king. We do not see that yet, but his kingdom is nevertheless inaugurated, and we are members of it. And so it is a day to celebrate today what Jesus has already done for us and to anticipate those things which he will do that are still coming, and wait for them with certain hope that the full kingdom will be established. And by way of celebrating what Jesus has already accomplished, I want to spend the next few minutes uh, looking with you at one of the most profound and clear and concise statements of the gospel in the entire Bible. If you want to, if you want to, if you want to look for, for the one statement in your Bible that talks about Jesus' death and why he died and his resurrection, and what he came to do in his sacrifice and resurrection, this is the verse. In fact, if you want to know what is the heartbeat of your pastor, and if you cut me open what you will find there, you will find this verse that we're about to look at. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some extra copies there on the back table. Uh, Be sure to grab one, take it with you as our gift to you. We want everybody to be able to read and study and understand the Bible. Um, And so if you don't have one, get one. Uh, And we'll be happy to give you one that you can have because everybody needs to be able to understand and read God's Word for themselves. Now, 1 Peter 3.18, this is not a long passage, but there's a lot of content here. For Christ also suffered once for sin, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, again, this is not a long passage, but this passage is absolutely critical that you understand this. And so I want to break this down for us in little chunks as we go through. And the passage obviously begins with the word for. And this is, if you want to use the technical term, uh, Jim probably, i got to scratch him every now and then where he itches. He likes all the technical stuff related to the text. This is an explanatory conjunction, right? Uh, this is uh, This is... Giving a reason or giving an explanation for what he is just of, of what he's just been talking about, what he's just been explaining. And Peter is explaining that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so in this verse, Peter's giving us an example of Christ, who, as we saw last week, is the ultimate example of suffering for doing good. And You may remember that message from last week about how Jesus faithfully endured in the midst of unjust suffering, and Peter, uh, every section, by the way, of 1 Peter, every single chapter has a section dealing with unjust suffering, every single chapter, and it's because Peter's original readers are enduring unjust suffering because they are followers of Jesus. And so Peter points them over and over and over and over and over back to Jesus and says, imitate Jesus. Uh, He he suffered unjustly, and you need to also be willing to suffer unjustly for him. But more than that, you need to remember why Jesus suffered, because because Jesus' suffering gives purpose to yours and to mine. If we understand, in other words, think of it this way, if we understand that Jesus suffered for a greater purpose, which was to bring redemption to you and me, then surely we can endure suffering on his behalf. Because if the one who died to save me had to suffer unjustly, then surely, in consequence of the fact that I have received salvation, I can endure as well. And Peter gives us the reason. He says, "Christ also suffered once for sins." And here Peter uses the exact same phrase. Again, this is for Jim. It's the word. It's the words "peri hamartion," which is for sin. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament uh, in Peter's day, most of the people who uh, were Jewish. Um, and who lived out who lived dispersed around the Roman world, most of them did not speak Hebrew. And so in about 160, I believe it is, uh, BC, there's a translation of the script of the Old Testament scriptures that's made called the Septuagint. And that was essentially the Bible for Jews, for the vast majority of them. And Peter borrows the exact words that are used to describe the the sacrifice that's made on the Day of Atonement. The exact Greek phrase that's used there to talk about the Day of Atonement is the one Peter uses in Greek here in the the New Testament to talk about Jesus' sacrifice. It's a sacrifice for sin. And... If you remember when we looked at Leviticus chapter 16, we looked at the day of atonement, uh, Yom Kippur. It was on that specific day and only on that day when the high priest would go in, uh, he would slaughter a bull first for his own sin, and then he would slaughter a goat for the sins of the people. And then he would take some of the blood, remember this? And he would sprinkle that blood on the atonement cover on what was called the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the idea was that these two cherubim, these two winged beings that represented God's holiness and justice would look down and they would see not the sin of the people, which were the things that were contained in the box that symbolized their sin, but that they would see the blood of the sacrifice covering over that sin and their sins then were atoned for for one more year. And so what I'm saying is this. When Peter describes Jesus' death this way, as referring back to the Day of Atonement, what he's saying is is that Jesus in his death is atoning for and covering over people's sin. In Peter's view, Jesus does not die as a revolutionary, although he was revolutionary in what he taught. He did not die as a martyr, although he was put to death for a good cause. He did not die simply as a good example, although his death is an example to us who follow him. He died, Peter says, for sins. And his death covered sins, just like the blood of animals did on the Day of Atonement. But there's one very major difference, one very major difference between Jesus' death and the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And I want you to take your pen or a pencil if you've got one. If you've got an ESV Bible, underline that word once. If you've got an NIV, I think it says once for all. Okay, underline that once. The Day of Atonement sacrifices had to be made year after year after year after year after year after year after year. year. From the day of Moses in about 1500 B.C. until the day of Jesus in 30 A.D., you've got roughly 1,530 Day of Atonement sacrifices. And year after year after year after year, the Day of Atonement sacrifice is made. And symbolically, everybody's sin is covered, but really their sin remains on them. And their sin is never fully and totally removed and atoned for. It is symbolically, but not really. And Peter says Jesus made one sacrifice. And it didn't just cover sins for a while. It covered all sin for all people for all time. It was one sacrifice because it was completely sufficient for all sin and completely sufficient for all people and completely sufficient for all time. And aren't we glad, amen? Amen. Because how many of my sins were future when Jesus died? All of them. How many about yours? Were yours yet in the future when Jesus died? Yes. But Jesus' death covers all people and all sin at all times. So reaching way back into the past, however far back Adam and Eve lived, all the way into the future until the very end of history, Jesus' life and His death is the hinge on which history turns. And His death is the sacrifice that provides covering over all sin of all people in all times. Everything that anyone has ever done or will ever do in rebellion against God is covered at this moment on this Friday. It's one sacrifice. And by the way, the reason I am getting agitated on that, is that people sometimes get this very screwed up. Some of our brothers and sisters in the broader Christian community get the idea that every time you take communion, as we're going to do here in just a little bit, that Jesus, in a sense, is re-sacrificed with every communion ceremony, and that that's that that act of drinking that grape juice and and eating that cracker, somehow that that's really the body and blood of Jesus Christ, not a memorial, and that therefore all the sins I've committed since my last communion ceremony I participated in are covered by Jesus' unbloody sacrifice in communion. Okay? If you... If you actually believe official Roman Catholic doctrine, that is what they teach you. Lutherans and Anglicans are something similar. Okay? Someone who is part of those communions might very well be my brother and my sister if they have believed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but they are screwed up on that. It's one sacrifice. It's not offered continually. It's once. And Peter makes it clear. It's once. Jesus is not still hanging on the cross. Amen? He was taken down. And He was buried. And He was raised to new life. It's one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time. And in fact, Hebrews says it this way. Peter, if you want to underline it, Peter says. Peter says it once. Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews chapter ten, verse thirteen. When this priest, meaning Jesus, had offered one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you know why he sat? Because his job was done. If you read through the tabernacle and the, and the temple, you'll read about all this description of all this furniture that's there. There's altars and there's lampstands, and there's the ark, and there's the table, and there's the incense altar, and there's fire pans, and censers, and all this stuff, and cups, and dishes, and all kinds of stuff. But you know what there's not any of? Chairs. You know why? Because the work of the priest was never done. They had to continually offer sacrifice in the morning and in the evening and special sacrifices at the Sabbath and at the new moon and at the the change of the seasons with the various festivals and at Yom Kippur, special sacrifices for that and special sacrifices for the sin offering and a special goat for the scapegoat and special sacrifices for each new year. Sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and rivers of blood flowed out of the temple and the tabernacle. Why? Because the work was never done. Jesus is the priest whose work was done when he offered one sacrifice for all sin. And in addition to that, he died as a substitute, specifically as a substitute for sinners. Look at your Bible here. The righteous for the unrighteous. Literally, how that reads is the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, plural. The righteous one, Jesus, for the unrighteous ones, you and me. It's a substitutionary death. It's a penal substitute. Because the penalty for sin is what? Death. Because why? You are guilty of high treason against God when you sin against him. And the penalty for high treason is death. And so Jesus dies your death. He takes your penalty and mine. Brother Rick Rosetto in Sunday School class here this morning reminded me of this great painting of Rembrandt of the Crucifixion. I love Rembrandt. You know he 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 had a colorful life, but he understood the gospel. That's why if you go on our website and look up podcasts or this whole series of podcasts on the cross, it's a Rembrandt etching, three crosses, and Rembrandt's in that picture too. Rick reminded me this morning, there's a scene that Rembrandt painted of the erection of the cross and these guys pushing up the cross into the hole where Jesus is going to hang. And Rembrandt is one of the guys pushing up the cross. And that's very significant. Rembrandt was making a great statement there. He was saying, I am the one who put Jesus to death. It was my sin. It was your sin and my sin that put Jesus on that cross. And he dies taking our penalty as our substitute. And I think one of the best illustrations I've ever come across with this, Karen and I went to a movie. It's been now about 20 years ago. It's an old movie. At this point, the movie is called Summersbee. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Probably not. Richard Gere, Jodie Foster... Kind of an interesting movie. Here's the thing. Jack Summersby is a southern plantation owner who joins the Confederate Army. He's captured and he's imprisoned for the remainder of the war, and he's finally released at the end to make his way back home. And he's, he doesn't have his, his cavalry horse has been shot out from under him. He's walking back home on foot. And the clothes he went off to war in. And when he arrives home, he finds he's been pronounced dead. His beloved house and his lands are in need of serious repair. His wife is engaged to another man. And in the face of all these challenges, Jack Summersby begins setting all things right. His wife, Laurel, breaks off her engagement and falls in love all over again with the man who treats her kindly and with great tenderness, and reads her poetry from Homer. They have a baby about 10 months after Jack's return, and his relationship with his former slaves is completely transformed. He sells, in fact, his ancestral property to both local white townspeople and newly freed slaves, and he uses the funds to buy tobacco seeds that everybody can plant so that the restoration of the local economy can begin after the war. And he promises to use the part of the proceeds to rebuild the local church, which was severely damaged and shot up. And all of this behavior is totally unlike the man who went off to war four years earlier. And profound change has come over this man, and people begin to notice. The first person to notice was his wife, who remembered her husband as a man both totally uninterested in poetry and also cruel and abusive. second person to notice is the local shoemaker, who notices that the guy who has come back has feet that are two sizes smaller than the guy who left. And then his former slaves begin to notice because they think, surely this man is not the same man who fought for the Confederate Army to keep us as slaves based on how he's treating us now. But everyone pretty much puts all these changes out of mind because the new man is so much better than the old. And all that seems to be going just well and fine until two federal officers show up with a warrant for his arrest. He's on trial for murder, and at trial, in cooperation with Jack's wife, Laurel, and her former fiancé, they present evidence that the man on trial is not, in fact, the real Jack Summersby, but a man named Horace Townsend, who was once an English teacher in Virginia, and the real Jack Summersby, according to his defense attorney, died two years ago on his way home after he was released from wartime imprisonment. And Horace Townsend was his prison cellmate. And soon the trial becomes not just about whether Jack Summersby committed murder, but whether the man on trial is in fact Jack Summersby. And the defendant faces a conundrum because. If he goes with the evidence presented by his attorney, he can prove that he isn't Jack Summersby and escape murder charges, but be liable for fraud, imprisonment, and the likelihood that the newly freed blacks will be thrown out of his farming co op. Or he can prove that he is the real Jack Summersby and probably hang. By this point, the audience knows that the man on trial is not, in fact, the real Jack Summersby, but he nevertheless fires his lawyer and proves in court that he is, and then he is convicted of murder, condemned to death, and publicly hanged, and all of the townspeople, including its free blacks, turn out to watch. And everyone and all of his promises, because he is pronounced guilty, are kept. Church is rebuilt, the land becomes productive, and everybody admires the legacy of this noble man who dies for a crime he didn't commit. And this is somewhat similar, I think, if you think about it, to what Jesus did. In the incarnation, God became a man. He looked like us, and he talked like us, and he walked, and he ate, and he drank, and he slept like us. And because of his love for us, he died for evil that we did and gave us shares in his father's estate. Remember what Jesus said? When I go away, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms. In other words, we get shares in the estate. We are adopted as the sons of God because Jesus died as our substitute for the evil that we did, not that he was guilty of. As Peter says here, verse 18, he died for sins to bring us to God. Think about it. The only begotten, the only true, the only natural Son of God died so that those who have no legitimate claim to relationship with God could be His children. Or let me put it another way. Karen and I love our blood children very much. And we have talked about adopting maybe even someday as our kids get older. You know, maybe it'd be fun to adopt a kid or three or ten. I don't know. I mean, you know, who, who wants to put limits on what God's grace can accomplish? And I'm sure that if we adopt a child, that we will love and adore that child just as if it was one of my own blood children. But let me put the question to you this way. What if one of your natural children had to be slaughtered by evil people so that the adoption could proceed? Who would do that? Not me. And yet God, because of his great love for those who hated him, who rebelled against Him, who sinned against Him, who committed treason against Him, people like you and I who did wicked, evil, unspeakable things that we are embarrassed to tell each other. God sent Jesus to die for us, to bring us to God as adopted sons. The begotten Son of God was slain so that you could take your place alongside him in God's house. And unlike Jack Summersby or any of the other countless military heroes that are there, Jesus died not for his friends but for his enemies. And he laid down his life for those who hated and were rebelling against him. Even for the people who actually drove the nails, who actually delivered the beatings, who crowned, who crowned him with thorns, who pronounced the death sentence, for those people too, Jesus died. And better than Jack Summersby, Jesus wasn't an imposter, he was exactly who he claimed to be. He was the Son of God, the Messiah, the King. And he was put to death in the body and made alive by the Spirit so that his identity was proved true. He was made alive in the Spirit, meaning he was raised from the dead. He did not stay dead. After he had paid the atonement penalty for our sins, he was raised from the dead. Why? So that we can know, first of all, that his claims were true, so that we can know, second of all, that our sin is finished being paid for. And so that we can know finally that we can receive also the new life that Jesus offers. Because the, the, Jesus' death is the promise of forgiveness of sin, and cleansing, and adoption into God's family. Jesus' resurrection offers us the promise of new life, and eternal life in the presence of God. And all those promises are proved trustworthy by the resurrection, because as I've said before, and I will probably say another 50 times before I die, if a guy claims to be God, don't believe him. But if a guy claims to be God, dies for sin, and is raised from the dead, you better take notes. Because there are some unusual factors about this man among all the men in all history that prove that what he said was true. And what he said was, I am God in the flesh. And when I die, I will take away your sin if you put your trust in me. And I will be raised from the dead just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. So I'll be three days in the earth and then I'm going to rise. And he did it. And he did it for you and for me to pay the penalty for sin he hadn't done but that we had. And offer us the new life that we could never earn and don't deserve Freely get to receive my grace. Amen? Amen. Two things I want to say to you. First of all, if you have never believed this message, then before you leave today, you need to believe. You need to believe what the Scripture says about Jesus. If you've never bowed your heart and relinquished your pride and said to God that what he says about you is true, that you are a sinner, and apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, you deserve to go to hell, and you have, apart from that, no hope of ever entering his presence, I want you to do that today. Right now, you can do it with your eyes open if you want. You don't have to close your eyes. We do that to give people privacy, but it's not necessary for God's sake. And you can right now say, God, you're exactly right. I'm a rebel. I'm a traitor. I deserve death and hell as the punishment for my sin. But I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one for unrighteous me. And he was put to death in the body for me, but he was made alive in the spirit also for me. Offer me new life. And Father, if you will have me, I am trusting in you in the payment that Jesus Christ made in his death and resurrection. And if you do that, you will do that. Then at the moment that you place your trust in Jesus Christ, relinquishing any other hope that by your good works or by your karma or by whatever, you're going to somehow earn your way into God's presence. then God receives you at that very moment as his child. And he, you are granted by grace, by a gift, shares in the Father's estate. And give a new life. A relationship with God through faith in His Son. Membership in God's family. Forgiveness of your sin. An eternal share in God's house. New life. And if you've got some questions about that, see me after the service. I'll stay as long as I have to to make sure that that is clear and that you understand what you're doing when you place your trust in Jesus Christ. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, let me just tell you, I know because I know you all, and, and and I love you, and I know your hearts, and I know that if any of you could save somebody else from dying of anything, that you would rush to do whatever was necessary to make that happen. If you knew somebody was going to be in a car accident, you would call them on the phone at minimum and say, don't get in your car today. I know you're going to have a car accident and you're going to be killed. If you had the cure for AIDS you would get on the horn with the CDC and say, I've discovered this. We're going to save about 20 million people's lives around the world every year. Isn't this great? We're going to spread the news. Come get this shot. Because we're going to save your life. But let me share the truth with you. The most terrible thing that people die from is not disease, it isn't car accidents, it isn't Alzheimer's, it isn't cancer. It isn't being struck by lightning, it isn't gunshot. It isn't bubonic plague, it isn't any number of the terrible things that happen to people. It that is not the thing that kills us. It's sin that ultimately brought forth death into the world and that brings death into each person's life. And that's not the worst part either because physical death, if you die apart from a relationship with, with God through faith in Jesus Christ, leads to the second death, separation from God in hell. And you know what is true? of all evangelical gospel-believing Christians have never in their entire life loved anybody who was lost enough to open their mouth and say, I have the cure for the biggest problem that you face. I have the one thing that is capable of keeping you from dying forever. And I say that not as an indictment of us as a congregation, but as a challenge. If we really believe this stuff, and we do, if we really believe that Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead is the one solution to all of the problems of all of humanity, that the gospel is the thing which transforms not only people, but will save the world, then why aren't we doing anything about it? One or two things. Either we don't really believe what the Bible says, or we just don't like people all that much. One or the other. And I know that that neither one of those is true of us. And so we have to. We have to, as a church, as individuals, be about the process of sharing the gospel with people. Amen? Introducing them to Jesus Christ. And if you want a verse to memorize to help you share the gospel, this is a good one. It's only one verse. You get it all in there. Jesus Christ came to die for your sin. And he was put to death in the body and raised by the spirit to give you new life. It's all right there. You don't even have to like do six verses like they do for the Romans road. You got one verse to memorize. This is it. You can do it. your I mean, write it in the front of your Bible and take your Bible with you to share. You know, what verse was I supposed to go to? Oh, yeah, 1 Peter 3.18. Here we go. Let me share this with you. You need to know this because apart from believing and trusting in this, you're going to die and go to hell. And I love you too much to let that happen. This ought to ignite us and drive us and cause us to be willing to endure, Peter says, all kinds of suffering for that. Because Jesus died to save us, we should be willing to suffer and even to die that others might be saved. Amen? I'm done yelling at us. Let's pray. Okay. God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We can never thank you enough. We can never say, Jesus, thank you enough for coming to die, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, to be put to death in the body, made alive in the spirit, to pay the penalty for my sin, to be the penal substitute, take away the penalty of sin for me and to lay it on himself give me new life give me an eternal share in the Father's house Father we can never say thank you enough but we nevertheless say thank you today and Father we pray that if anyone here has never believed this greatest of all messages that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners to die on a cross on their behalf and to be raised from the dead to give them new life Father I pray that today would be that day And Father, for those of us who are your children already, may we be grateful in a way that demonstrates itself in sharing what has saved us with others who need to hear. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.